following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see you. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Dave York. I'm not another Dave. I'm one of the Daves, um, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my joy uh, to get to preach God's word to us this morning. So we're going to open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Or you can do that with us this morning. Open your phones. Open open this little thing called a Bible that you hold in your hands, right? Um, what a joy! What a joy to worship with you this morning. What a what a privilege it is, isn't it, to be together in the house of the Lord and just worship God together. You know, conflicts in our world happen on so many different levels. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 13 and we saw the reality of interpersonal conflicts and how that we as God's people are to be peacemakers. But what about international conflicts? You know, weekly, if not daily, we read about nations rattling their weapons against other nations. I looked up this week um, because I was curious of what is the purpose of the United Nations? (laughs) Yeah, some of you laugh. I know. Yeah. But in summary, Dave York's summary is it's to bring people from every nation together to discuss and perpetuate security and peace for all nations. But that's hardly what we see in our world. The Russian war on Ukraine is now in its 14th month. In the 20th century, our world endured two world wars. Our nation alone went through those two conflicts plus the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the first war with Iraq. And many of you in the room fought in those wars, and we can't thank you enough. I was at a ceremony yesterday where the man, a man was 96 years old who had survived the, the Indianapolis sinking. It's an amazing story. But these wars that we read about, the big wars, they're the ones that get the news clippings. But did you know that since 1948, there's been an ongoing war in Myanmar, also known as Burma? Think about that. Since 1948, almost yearly, if not an annual occurrence, you hear about there's a new revolution in either America, in Africa or South America. Some nation begins to get its nose sideways with one another. War is a painful reality of what goes on in our world. question is, where did it begin? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to actually see the first international conflict in the Bible. We're also going to see something else. We're going to see how God's people respond to the temptations of the world. We're going to see behind the backdrop of these physical international conflicts We're going to see the spiritual war we find ourselves in. We're going to find out how do we as God's people combat these things. So this morning, here's what I hope we'll learn. This is the big idea 
Um, in our sermons here, we give a big idea if you're new, just to help kind of give a summary. Uh, you're going to hear me repeat this over and over again because I think you'll see it throughout the text. But here's what I hope we'll learn today. There will be conflict in this world. But God will protect his promise and help his people. There will be conflict in this world. But God will protect his promise and help his people. So please stand with me. We're going to read Genesis 14, beginning in verse 8. We stand because this is the reading of God's word. It is authoritative. It is God-breathed. It is inspired. It is the word. It is the word from the Lord. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. With Kederleomer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of Bidiman pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Avaner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been Taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servant, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketaliomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Ashkel and Mamre take their share. Thank you. You may be seated.
Father, would you bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of the preaching of your word for the glory of your good name, for the good of your people and the advancement of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you read this story in Genesis 14, you've got to keep the bigger picture of the book of Genesis in mind. Moses wrote the book of Genesis to encourage the people of Israel on their journey from Egypt to the promised land many, many years after this story was actually happened. And he has shown the people of Israel and us that there is one God who created All things. He created the heavens and the earth. He is the authority above all authorities. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the creator of all creators. And God chose one man, a man named Abram, to be the father of his people. And God told Abram two different times that he would make Abram a great nation and that God's blessings would come through Abram to Abram's people, who are the people of faith throughout the entire Bible. So you've got to ask yourself a question when you get to Genesis 14, is why would God put a story about an international war in the book right now? We're just coming off of a story in Genesis 13 when Abram and Lot had a conflict and Abram served as a wonderful peacemaker by allowing Lot to choose whatever land he wanted, and then Abram took the rest, and they separated in peace. And we're left with this wonderful display of peace between God's people because, because one man was willing to be a peacemaker. And then Genesis 14 jumps into a story of an international conflict. Why would it come after a chapter on peace and promise? Well, there's one reason. And it's the big idea. Don't miss this. There will be conflict in this world. But God will protect his promise and help his people. See, don't, don't miss that. And here's why You should not miss this. Because, friends, you probably do this every morning or every evening at some point when you pull up the news feed on your phone or you pull out that thing that we used to call a newspaper, right? I mean, and you read on written page all of the stuff going on in this world and you wonder to yourself, there's no way that God is at work. Everything is chaotic. Things are in turmoil. There is trouble everywhere. There's agendas that are not even known but seem to be seen. There are, there are conflicts arising behind closed doors of places we know nothing about. And we're reading on the page just symptoms to a problem. There's war everywhere. Division at every turn. Craziness seems to be winning the day. And you might wonder when you read these things, like, there's no way that God is accomplishing anything. There's no way that God's promise 
will be fulfilled. There's no way that God is helping his people. And then we're confronted with Genesis 14. It's a text that comforts our troubled and anxious souls because it tells us something. It tells us that conflicts will happen in the world. But God, but God will work to protect his promise and he will protect his people. Don't miss that. Now listen, friends, listen, you need this today. But so does your preacher. We need this today. You need it because you're worried about your children. You're worried about the future of your nation. You're worried about all the stuff you see going on. You need this today to be reminded of this glorious and wonderful truth. God, God will always protect his promise and he will always help his people. So let's start with the first point in our notes and our outline, which is war. We'll see this in verses 1 through 12. As I mentioned, this is the first time in the book of Genesis where a foreign king invades Abram's promised land. Now, there's a few things to pick up in the text that tell you a little bit about this, and and some of it we didn't read, so it's going to come up on the screen for you. First notice in verses 1 and 2, the description of all the various rival kings and their kingdoms. It's the first time we get a glimpse that inside of Abram's promised land, there are all these warring factions, and they don't seem to get along with each other very well. And verses 3 through 5 tell us why there's a conflict. These kings in verses 1 and 2 were done by being ruled by a man and a king named Keterleomer. They were under his rule for 12 years, and in the 13th year, they had had enough. So they rose up in rebellion against him, and in the 14th year, Keterleomer decides, I'm going to get rally up my guys, and I'm going to squash this rebellion. Then in verses 8 and 9, it tells us about the alliances. Now notice the language is really emphatic. It says five kings and four kings. It's in a sense revealing to us there are a five-kingdom alliance going against a four-kingdom alliance, and that that's going to play out a little bit for us in a bit. But then finally notice something else in the text. Verse 3, verse 8, and verse 10 Tell us they fought in this valley called Siddim, which had huge bitumen pits. This is where, if you know much about the land of Israel, this is where the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea is located. Now, it doesn't take long in the text for the four kings to gain victory over the five kings. The victory is swift and it is vast. So much so that verses 10 and 11 tell us that some of the five kings actually fell into the Bidiman pits and the rest of them fled to the hill country. We don't know about the war. We don't know how long it took. We just look at, I mean, one verse and boom, it's gone. It's happened. And the victorious kings then took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and went on their way. But then that paragraph ends with a startling, just a like a, a moment that you just go, okay, that's interesting. Startling news to the people of God and to Abram. Notice verse 12. 
And they also took Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, in this moment, you're going to notice something. Lot is not part of the Five Kingdom Alliance. Lot is just seemingly minding his own business. Now, you'll remember from our study last week that Lot was in Sodom because of his unwise choice of land. Remember this? He chose the land that was well-watered, it was fertile, but it was filled with evil. So here he is now being in the wrong place at the wrong time because of an unwise choice. Anybody else can relate to that? All right? No, officer, I wasn't involved in this activity, right? Then why are you here? Wrong place, wrong time. And we're going to see this moment of of Lot being taken proves to be decisive for Abram. Now, just from the story of the war, let's just ponder some things we can learn from this, okay? First, I want you to notice something. The Bible is making it very clear that international conflict is part of living in the fabric of a Genesis 3 world. I'm going to say something to you that's going to shock some of you. World peace is impossible and unsustainable because of the sin of man. So you know the pageants. What's your hope for the world? World peace. It is impossible and unsustainable because of the sin of humans. We will always find something to fight about. The power and the battle for power, for authority, for submission, for supremacy has been waged from the beginning of time. And what Genesis 14 is just revealing to us is there are conflicts in this world. They happen all the time. Lasting eternal peace must come from divine heavenly intervention. So, friends, listen, you know the moment of peace in your home? I mean, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. It's not international, but sometimes it feels like international conflict. You know that moment, and you're, you're, your kids are playing like angels. And you look at your spouse, and you say, this is heaven on earth. And I've literally told my wife, honey, God has visited this home. And there's other times when I've said, what demon has jumped inside that kid? Anybody relate, right? Lasting eternal peace must have divine heavenly intervention. So listen, why this is so important is this. As Christians, we do something that we've got to just get out of our system. We've got to stop being shocked. And we need to be more grieved. We read things and we go, how did that ever happen? Genesis 3 tells you. Genesis 14 tells you. It should grieve us because it's revealing the sin of mankind. When Vladimir Putin decided to clash his swords and crash into Ukraine, our hearts still went, oh, my word, sin. And that leads to the next lesson I think we should learn, which I don't think was one of Moses' lessons, but it's a lesson we can learn as New Testament Christians. 
this reveals to us there's a larger war going on that we better pay attention to. There are physical wars in this world and conflicts in your home and conflicts in your workplace and conflicts in your nation because there's a spiritual war going on every second of every day. And it's a war for the souls of men, women, and children. And the author of sinful war, Satan himself, will do everything he can to keep us fighting with one another. And here's the challenge. The challenge is physical conflicts mask in our eyes and put a blinder over our eyes the reality of the spiritual war that's raging in the background. So what we do is we see war, we get shocked rather than grieved because we are amazed there's physical conflict and not grieved about who's being lied to in the spiritual conflict. Ephesians 6 makes this so clear to us, doesn't it? The battle we fight, friends, is not with flesh and blood. This is why I got to be just honest with you as your pastor. I I am so burdened over the fact that we as Christians, we, we speak so harshly to people. And we do not handle people as image bearers that are being lied to about certain things. And they have blinders over their eyes. And we treat them with the same weapons that they're treating us with. And we think we're going to help them see the gospel. Why the political fights in our world are blinding us, blinding us to the real spiritual battle that's happening everywhere. The political fight is a symptom to the cause, to the problem. Problem is hearts are not turned to the risen Christ to see the reality of who we are as human image bearers that would make us live differently. See, that that's the concern. The battle we fight is spiritual. There's spiritual powers at work in heavenly places. So listen, this text is showing us war is real. It's real. Those of you who've been in it, you know it. I, I'm grateful to God I didn't experience war. I didn't because you experienced war. But that physical war points us that there's a real spiritual war going on happening every second of every day. That leads us to the second point, which is victory. We're going to notice this in verses 13 through 16. Now, again, remember that the alliance of four took away Lot and his family and their possessions. But someone escaped from that war and comes to Abram and says, hey, just let me tell you what happened. And you'll notice in the text that it calls Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time, and there's some debate, but the only time that Abram is called Abram the Hebrew to describe him in this way. It was used to identify Abram with the people of Israel on their journey as Moses is writing their history and reading it to them at night. It's like saying to our children, in in a sense, George Washington the American. We all go, yeah, I'm a George Washington kind of guy, right? He was on our side. Aren't you glad? 
You should say amen to that, by the way, right? Yes, I am glad, right? I've got some British friends that aren't glad, but I, that's, that's on them, right? Now, it's a tribute in this moment to Abram's people, the Hebrews, and what he's about to do in the text. And it's a way to encourage the Israelites on their challenging journey. Now, you're going to notice something about Abram. He was living by the oaks of Mamre. Now, just think about that scene. You know what? You just happened to experience it this weekend when the sun came out for the 72 hours that it came out. Right? And you probably did like I did. I did. You went and sat out in the sun. You listened to the wind blow. You watched the, the birds. That's what he's doing. This is a moment. It's a scene of serenity. It's a scene of peace. It's a scene of him enjoying and listening to the world all around him because of the wise decision that he had to let Lot make his own choice of land. And it's in contrast to Lot. Where's Lot in this moment? Lot and all his possessions are on some road to nowhere being taken captive by enemy kings because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time because of his unwise choice. He's living in a world of chaos, and where's Abram living? In a land of peace. And when Abram heard what happened to Lot, he gathered all of his men together who were black belts in warfare. And he divided them up at night and surprised the alliance of four and defeated them. Abram is shrewd. And he utilized surprise, now listen again, to shock an enemy of four kingdoms, which five kingdoms could not defeat. So you can see what the author's doing here. He's basically saying something to the people of Israel. Five kingdoms could not defeat four kingdoms, but 318 men plus Abram could. And then verse 16 summarized the victory. He brought back all the possessions, and notice what it says, including Lot, and I love this, and all the women and children. The deed was done. Now, the text is very straightforward. Abraham took tra- Abram took trained men, chased down Kedeliorma's alliance. He divided up his men at night, surprised the enemy, defeated them. He then took back all the spoils of war and saved Lot's family and Lot's possessions. That's the story. What do you learn from it? What can we learn from this that really helps us? I want you to notice first, what drug Abram into the conflict? Notice clearly, it was an innocent person who was taken by a tyrant. Don't miss this. See, that there's many of you out in this congregation that are looking for opportunities to use force. I know you. You've talked to me about it. When can I just go smoke somebody? Right? But I want to be honest with you. Biblically, there's narrow reasons to use force. And right here we see one of them. An innocent person taken by a tyrant. See, Lot seemed to be minding his own business, was taken away by a rival king, and Abram involved himself in a physical conflict to save the innocent from tyranny. Now, what's fascinating is, friends, this is one principle, whether or not where you land on the Second Amendment debate or not, this is one reason why our founding fathers gave us the Second Amendment, to protect the innocent 
from a tyrant and specifically from a tyrannical government. Don't miss that. Abram was dragged into this conflict to protect the innocent from a tyrant. That's one thing. Now, that's not all the reasons for use of force, but that's one of the principles we might see here. But there's also something else that would be remarkably encouraging to the children of Israel who were on their way to the promised land. How encouraging do you think Abram's victory would have been to them? Because on their journey, they're going to face very similar enemies. Huge odds against them, just like Abram's 318 men against a four-kingdom alliance. Yet God would give them victory and God would help his people. See, Kenneth Matthews put it like this. If Father Abraham could defeat the invincible Keterleomer, the Israelites could take courage facing enemies in their own day. See, this story would have given Abram's people hope that the God of the universe was indeed on their side. So in your Bibles, what you're going to read is about little dinky things defeating really big things. You got David defeating Goliath. You got Gideon's ragged 300 men defeating the mighty Midianites. And you get all the way into the New Testament, which is an amazing thought that the king of the universe would condescend to become a baby born in a manger of a nowhere town called Nazareth to conquer the greatest adversary in the history of the universe. All because God says, I will help my people against the greatest of odds. See, this story is a reminder that God is on our side. God will help his people and God will deliver his people. Now let's tie that in to this spiritual war that we're fighting every moment of every day. Prince Paul wrote that our weapons for this spiritual war are not like the world fights with. Our weapons have divine power to destroy arguments and every arrogant idea raised up against the truth of God. What you'll find today, it's interesting, I was discussing this last night with our elder team, I was discussing this morning with Ransom. You're going to find today in the world that you're living in, the foundations that you have always kind of built upon, the idea of absolute truth is true, or at least it may be true and you can debate it a little bit with what you feel, is now completely out the door. Now the foundation is this, there is no truth, and what the truth is, is what you like or dislike. How you feel about it or how you don't feel about it. And the gospel and the power, the weapons that we have are about destroying arguments or every idea raised up against the knowledge of God. And like Abram before us, we are to wage war, listen, with shrewdness, with wisdom, with discernment, using every weapon at our disposal to help affect people and let them see the glory of the gospel. And what this means at the baseline level is, We don't wage war like the world does. That's why I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the online debates that go on in Christians. I I think, I personally think, and I read it, it is vicious. It is vindictive. It is not face-to-face treating somebody as an image bearer made in the image of God. We do not give value to one another to actually hear the concern and why they're feeling the way they're feeling, or better yet, what experiences led them to this particular 
point. Instead, we are yelling at them through a computer screen or we do it somewhere else at work or whatever it may be. And we're waging a war, a spiritual war with fleshly weapons. And this is much more than just not using a physical gun or like the Vikings did. The Vikings basically would take a, a place and they would call people to repent. And if they didn't repent, they just ran them through with a sword. Okay, that's not godly. Can we just agree with that right now? Okay. It's a lot more than that. It means this. We just don't treat other people the same way they treat us. We don't, we don't get unrighteously angry with them. We're, we're loving and forgiving. We're kind and we're winsome. Because we care. Because it's a soul that has eternal value. And we treat them as if God might one day, in some moment, intervene and open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Our message in this warfare is the power of God. And it is not some, listen, some new prophetic word that you're waiting on to infiltrate your world. God has already given it to you. It's the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing in the Bible called the power of God unto salvation. It is the dynamite of God, meaning you live and you display and you demonstrate and you declare the gospel. And one day that dynamite power just goes off and you never know where it's going to go off. You never know when it's going to go off because God is at work. It is the message of God who is the rescuer of people who have been taken captive by the tyrant of the kingdom of darkness. We utilize faith and we utilize prayer. We utilize the gospel. We utilize reconciliation with one another and our love for one another, displaying to the world there is a power so great that we're not going to fight over stupid stuff. We're going to unite over the glories of Christ. And we use love to win in this spiritual war. And God, the beauty of this is God will use those weapons and his people like us to bring down spiritual powers. You know how we know this? Because God said this is true. First Corinthians 1, Paul wrote these words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth, (laughs) but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And friends, are you aware? You had better be aware, you need to be aware, that victory for God's people in the spiritual battle is sure and it is certain. Abram's victory was guaranteed because God had already made a promise. You know what God said to Abram? I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse any who come against you. And God has promised the same for you and me in Christ. When your sin comes against you, Jesus has already stamped it down. 
when the accuser of your soul rises up to say, look at this one for what he has done, your your intercessor, your advocate stands before your father and says, nope, he is mine. They're mine. And when breath, your breath finally leaves you and death begins to close you into that grave, this is what Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A.P. Ross put it like this. God gives his chosen people victory over the world in accordance with his promises to bless and to curse. Using his servants who know his who know his high calling and will engage the enemy with courage. Listen clearly. The church cannot defeat spiritual wickedness by overthrowing corrupt governments or legislating better laws and ordinances. Listen why. The conflict is far greater than such efforts and calls for divine power for victory. This passage shows that God is fully able to give his people victory over the world. They must faithfully obey his word and contend for his cause. Friends, that quote shows us, doesn't it, how physical we've made the battle. If we just get the right president, the right legislation, the right policies, the right Those things are appropriate and right. We should fight for those. But they are not the end of themselves. Do you not want those politicians who might make right policy to come to know the knowledge of the risen Christ? Do you not want them to know that might put more money in your pocketbook? Don't you not want them to know the glories of the risen Christ? See, the battle is that much bigger. The conflict is far greater. It is much more than overthrowing a government and giving new legislation. It is all about the glories of the risen Christ being seen to every ends of the earth. Victory for God's people is because God will protect his promise and God will fulfill his word. It is not because you or I are such good people. It's because God is faithful to his promise and faithful to his word. So Christian, listen, in this world, there will be conflict. Why? Because there's a spiritual war raging. But God, oh, your God, he will protect his promise and his people, and final victory is certain. Listen, do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, it is so much bigger than a political candidate. It's so much bigger than some fight you might have in your home. It is all about the glories of Christ being seen and smelled and listened to and heard and believed. And are you living courageously in your world for this? Now that leads us to our last point, which is blessing. We'll see this in verses 17 through 24. Let me just ask you a question here. Let's just say that you're Abram and you've had this incredible victory. Right? What do you hope is going to happen? Our first state championship in 2002, we had a school at Uncle Valley Christian that had 95 students. And we beat a school that had 399. It felt so good. Right? What did you hope would be happened, Dave York? Oh, that I, that I'd be honored for it. That people would take notice. 
Maybe I could sign a new contract, right? Maybe I could get a promotion. What do you, what do you hope for when good things happen, when things work out, when suddenly there's things going on around you, like there's victory after victory after victory? Some of you are in businesses right now that are just booming. You're being honored all over the town and in the nation and people are recognizing you as something. I see your names in the newspaper. How do we handle that? See, we always talk about the test of adversity, James chapter 1. We very rarely talk about the test of success. In my personal experience in America, and I think with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the biggest challenge they had was the test of success. And this is a moment where the test of success is happening to Abram. Notice what happened. Two kings showed up. One, we'll use the last one that's pointed to first, the king of Salem, or this is the king of Jerusalem. His name is Melchizedek. We're told that he brought out bread and wine, and we're also told he's not only a king, but he's also a priest of Abram's God. Now, we don't know much about this guy. Much of what we do know is found in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7. I'm going to write about him more tomorrow on my blog, and you can get that if you'd like and read it, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. But what we do know in the book of Genesis are a few things that help us. First, he was the king of Jerusalem, but he's also a priest of the one true God, and he operated in some authoritative way. He had the ability to bless Abram and that blessing stick, and he had the ability to praise God and that, that praising of God sticks. But Abram, the father of faith, recognizes his spiritual authority by giving him a tenth of everything. And since he gives him a tenth of all the possessions that he probably just won in this battle. In other words, Abram offers tribute as a sign of his submission to Melchizedek, who is also a priest of the Most High God. Then you also have the king of Sodom showing up. Now he showed up after digging himself out of the, out of the Bidiman pits. So he's come crawling out, you know, covered in all kinds of stuff, shows up, and he attempts in to buy Abram off in exchange for the people, basically tells him, I'll give you all the possessions, uh, you give me the people. I'm going to write about that tomorrow as well, about why that's a great lesson for us right now as a church. But I don't think that's a key lesson right now. He offers him these possessions, and Abram just basically says to him, hey, keep your stuff. I don't need it. And here's why. Because I don't want you, the king of Sodom, taking credit for making me rich. Instead, what did he do? Abram took what he had, and he gave a tenth of it to the Melchizedek. Now, what is going on in this story? What's happening here? I want you to notice first, this is the greatest test that Abram faces in this story. So you may look at it and say, wouldn't Ketaliomer and his four-army alliance the greatest test? No. This is. And this is also the greatest miracle in this story, not him conquering that foreign army, those foreign armies. This internal test was the biggest test because it's a test for Abram's allegiance 
for his, for the fight for the battle of his heart supremacy. This was a test about who Abram and what Abram ruled his heart. Who is it, Abram? What rules your heart? Abram is instantly tested on how he would handle the test of success. Did he recognize God as the one who gave him victory? Or did he think he did it? Did he trust God for his possessions? Or would he take what the king of Sodom, now think about that kingdom, that evil and wicked place, what they offered him? See, the greatest miracle in this story is Abram passing the test of success by giving a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek. Now, here's a question for you. Do you do you see this test? A.P. Ross put it like this. The people of God frame their life so that all success, joy, comfort, and prosperity, they depend on God. But it must be a faith like Abram's that will be able to discern what is from God and what is from the world. Friends, is this how you see your successes? Do you see your comforts, your joys, your prosperity as from God and declaring to you in the same breath that you need more of God, that you need God more now that you have succeeded? And one way to check this in your heart, I think, is the, the test of Abram. Are you willing to give up a portion of your success to show that the Lord is the king over all of it? See, this moment in Abram's life is is where the principal idea in the Bible came from of giving at least a tithe or a 10% away to God. And you know where it came from? It came from a recognition that God is the one who supplied all of our possessions, and he's the one that gave us the ability to make all of our money, and he alone provides everything for us, So we gladly give to God what is God's. It has nothing to do with a legalistic 10%, 12%, 9%, what? Has nothing to do with it all at all. It has everything to do with who is the king of my pocketbook? Who is the king of my possessions? Who do I recognize my successes have come from? That's where this principle comes from. So do you see your success? your comforts, your joys, as gifts given to you by the hand of God, revealing to you your need for more of God, and as well, offering up everything you have to God because he's given it to you anyway. See, I'll be honest with you. Can you see how that's a big test? It's a big challenge. Abram passed this test. How about you? How's it going in your life? Do you take those moments of success as a moment to give glory to God and reveal more dependence upon God? Or is it now just more you can go spend? Or do you go take more because you can get it? But there's something else I want you to notice in the text that I don't think we should miss. This test of success is a huge test for Abram. It's a huge test for us. And we've already seen in this short time in Genesis a few tests. We've seen Adam and Eve. We've seen Noah and his family. 
We've seen Abram and other places get tested. And throughout the Bible, every one of our biblical heroes are going to be tested and tempted in various ways. And you're going to notice some succeed, some fail. Some when tempted by money, they fail. Some when tempted by immorality, they fail. Some when tempted to doubt, they succeed. Some when tempted to bow down to false gods, they conquer and rise up and do crazy things. And you're going to see this all over the Bible, but you're also going to see it in your own life. Tests and temptations, success and failure. But I just want to point to you the fact that Abram, Abram is the first guy that we notice here in this, in our Bibles, that is tested with a test of success, but he's not the last guy to be tested by the evil king of Sodom. Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 4, you'll read the story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the enemy himself, the original king of Sodom. You'll also read about it in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. At the beginning of his ministry, Matthew 4, toward the end of his ministry in Matthew 26, where in both moments, the Savior is tempted and he is tried and he is tested. And any time we read about biblical tests like Abram or Noah and his family, and any time we experience these tests, Friends, you should be reminded of the glorious truth that we find in the book of Hebrews when we write and see, we see it about this of our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is the one who is greater than Abram. He is the one, as we're going to read about in Hebrews chapter 5, who is in the line of Melchizedek, the eternal priestly line. He alone gained victory over sin and Satan for us by never giving in to any temptation or test. So, friend, do you, do you see your real king? Do you see the real priest rising to his Throne. And do you hear your king calling to you? Because Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. According to the next verse in Hebrews 4, we can go to him with confidence and find grace to help in our time of need. What great news that is. Are you aware that Abram is not standing at the right hand of God right now interceding for you against the king of Sodom? <laughs> no. Your great high priest, Jesus himself, is. Do you hear your king bidding you come? Your temptation to doubt, he will help you. Your temptation to addiction, he will help you. Your temptation to immorality, he will help you. Go to your king. Go to your king because he's greater than Abram. Greater than Abram. And he's your forever priest. Standing right now at the right hand of God. See, what we see in the text, isn't it true? There will be conflict in this world. Yes, there will. There will be tests. There will be temptations. But friends, your God, your God will protect his promise. And through the risen Christ, he will forever help his people. Don't ever miss that. Let's pray. Now, as we're praying this morning, and you're just 
laying your heart before the Lord. There are several of you that the Lord has just laid on my heart, several categories. I just want to speak to for a moment. There are those of you that are so worried and fearful about what's happening in our world that you have lost sight of the spiritual fight within your own home and your own heart. And this morning, my prayer for you is that God would turn your attention to help you see that there's a spiritual war being raged in your home and in your heart. And right now, that is as important, and I would say even more important, than your frustration with what's happening outside of your home and your heart. That's one category. There's another category of you that you're fighting the spiritual battle with fleshly weapons. You're using your own style, your own type of force, your own intimidation, your your force of will. And you're exasperated that nobody's changing. And so you become critical, you become proud, you become arrogant, you become angry. <laughs> this morning, the Lord wants to bring you to your knees. To help you see that the weapons of your warfare are not fleshly. And there's a last category of those of you that are battling with test and temptation and you feel it. The king of Sodom has knocking on your door. And he's offering you possessions in exchange for the people of your home. He's offering you riches in exchange for your soul. He's offering you euphoria for a moment in exchange for the people that you love. And this morning, I want you to hear that there's another king who's knocking on your door. And he is the glorious Christ. Open the door to Christ. Submit yourself to him. He will help you. Father, we are in need of much grace today. Some of us have struggled with anxiety and fear because of what we see in our world today, and we have taken our eyes off of the spiritual war in our own heart and our own homes. Would you turn our attention to these places? Let us watch our life and watch our doctrine. Let us guard our hearts, for out of it flows the issues of life, and let us guard our homes as spiritual men and women as you've made us to be. There's also some who have walked in arrogance and anger and pride and criticism, and they are so mad at what's happening in the world, they cannot see straight. And I pray, Lord, you bring them to their knees to help them see that you work through the meek and the humble and the lowly and the gentle who are demonstrating and declaring 
the glories of Christ. And people cannot hear the glories of Christ because they're too busy watching the glories of the king of Sodom come out of our hearts. Change, change people like this. Change, change us, change me. I pray for the friend, Lord, who's battling with the king of Sodom knocking on their door to get them to bow their knee to him. May they hear the risen Christ saying, I've come to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Open your door to me and let me in so I might come and sup with you. I want to help. Come to me and find grace. Lord, let them turn to you, to you, and let them find freedom and joy in Christ today. Bring people to Christ that don't know Christ. And Lord, your people who need rescuing, rescue them by your power. And Father, we thank you. Thank you because right now, oh, church, right now, do you see him there? But the mediator, the one, the one, the man, Christ Jesus, is mediating the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous is standing at your right hand and he is interceding for us, even taking my prayers and translating them to make them according to your will. We thank you that there, there at your right hand is the one who in, in the wilderness never failed, in the garden of Gethsemane never failed, nailed to a cross never failed, and you rose him from the dead because he is indeed the perfect son of God. Thank you, God that our advocate is standing for us. Church, do you see him there? Go to your king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.